Hey everyone, Jerry Thompson here. Before we get into this week's episode, I need to make an apology. During the mental health episode with Noah Weil, Noah told a story involving a judge call he had, and that story, how I reacted to it, all promoted different forms of discrimination, which frankly is unacceptable. That's definitely not how I want to utilize my platform, and that's certainly not who I want to be. So I'm sorry that I allowed that to happen. I'm sorry I didn't stop it from happening at the time. And I'm especially sorry to all of those who were affected by that portion of the podcast. But I do want to thank Max Kahn for taking the time to speak out about it. And uh, the same goes for everyone else who offered feedback. So if, if you want to know the full details on what went on and everything, I have some links in the show notes for you. But anyway, thank you for listening and enjoy this week's show. everyone, welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb. And I don't know, there's a bunch of stuff going on, right? We got some standard tournaments, some pioneer tournaments. Modern kind of chilling on the back burner. Legacy, I, I guess, is, is dead. Stop with that legacy dead nonsense. Legacy has always been a bunch of small communities tied together by love of the game. Nothing has changed about that. Legacy will be fine. Us legacy lovers will find a way to play our favorite format. Stop with the nonsense. But there is a lot of other stuff going on. You've got that right. Yeah, living in the Pacific Northwest helps with that a lot because right. Star Kingdom just has legacy all the time. Uh, or Mox Boarding House. Branding, man. The branding gets me. I guess I should not yell at people if they like, you know, call our podcast something than what it otherwise currently named. But Yeah, we, we don't get to throw shade when it comes to having multiple names and conf- confusing your listener yeah. base. We have certainly done that. In our, in our time. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, you want to start with Standard? I would love to talk about Standard. All right. So there's this Mythic Championship thing coming up. Deckless submission is the date of this recording, which is last Wednesday by the time y'all listen to this. And we had some bans. We had that Twitch Rivals tournament. And then since then, I think the metagame has kind of been getting fleshed out and now we're at a point where i think we can start doing some hard read type of action brian how do you feel about that mostly agree with you and i think you're seeing that start to happen the inbreeding is real gerald if you have seen decks succeeding on arena over the last few days it's not quite the noxious grasp four copies of noxious grasp main deck setup that we saw going into the last mc But you are starting to see more and more accounting for very specific things in main decks. The biggest like hard read I'm seeing made right now is just main deck enchantment and artifact removal, often in the form of thrashing Brontodon, but some other ways to address that problem. I've seen main deck Cinder Vines. It's a little crazy, but I've I've seen it. It's out there. I've even seen like main deck Leyline of the Void, which is a, another problem trying to be addressed. And I think that's kind of nonsense. But the, the problem of enchantments and artifacts is very real because if I'm setting up this standard format for someone who's just hopping in at this point, I think there's two very clear top decks. And they're also kind of poles. Like they they play very different gameplay styles. Uh, the two decks I'm talking about, of course, Jeskai Fires and some food variant, I would make the argument it's supposed to be Jun food, although Same. it seems like things are moving very much in the Golgari food direction right now. I think that's what people are hyped about. 
But regardless, food is one of those pillars and the commonality between those two decks, artifacts and enchantments, of course. Right. And uh, the Jeskai Fires deck doesn't have a lot. So you you load up on those sort of things and that can actually kind of bite you. But the upside to that is that Fires is not very good without its namesake. Yeah, it's it's only a mediocre deck at best. You'll still win games without it. I, I don't want to make this sound like it's Fires or Bust because you'll you'll find backdoor wins for sure. But the deck is only really of acceptable power levels when it has its namesake enchantment in play. Right, and then th- everything else in the format is fine, but they don't have these sort of like free win engine type of things going on. They're mostly just like, you know, creatures, removal, some amount of interaction. And I feel like that's kind of what sets these two top decks apart. And as far as playing main deck artifact and enchantment removal, I think that that is definitely where you need to be unless you're doing something like playing mono red or Rakdos Knights or whatever, where you're just trying to beat people down or even like Simic Flash where you can just like counter all their stuff, right? But for there to be main deck disenchant effects showing up, I don't think it's that bad. I mean, like how different is it for like you to need to kill a witch's oven versus needing to kill a creature with four toughness? Oh, I don't think it's a sign of like a problematic format. Like there's probably other issues I could bring up with this format, but the existence of main deck artifact enchantment removal it's a totally fine pillar to check off it's just one we're not accustomed to seeing and i think it catches your eye at first blush but certainly throughout magic's history this has been a common fallback state where you have to be able to address these type of permanents in the main deck and i think one of the big changes over the years has been we just accept more diverse answers so something like assassin's trophy comes to mind where you're just accounting for absolutely everything and that's generally how we play games of magic in the default mode at this moment in time it's just when things get really pushed to one direction is when we start looking at these uh, direct answers to these specific permanent types but we're also helped by the fact that what is currently being used as answers to these permanents are flexible cards there's things like thrashing brontodon which three four for three acceptable especially when you're dealing with aggressive decks from time to time having that body has proven to be completely fine and i think that's one of the reasons why you're incentivized to go in this direction is because you can account for this permanent type without being super hard punished in other matchups also like let's not forget that these aggressive decks also have their share of artifacts and enchantments Embercleave is another keystone card in the format while i put it a tier below fires and cat oven combo i do think Embercleave is very much at the top of tier two and a archetype that should be respected headed into this weekend's events. Yeah, I agree. There was a period where people were playing Simic and Golgari Adventures. Obviously, this was pre-ban. And they had Lovestruck Beast in their sideboard to block against the aggro decks. But I really like Thrashing Brontodon instead because Embercleave was the main way that you lost a lot of those games. So like, I was already moving towards Thrashing Brontodon at that point. And that the aggro decks with Embercleave were a big reason for it. So now you get to play some of those cards main deck. You don't feel bad about it. And you have this nice way to actually interact with the aggro decks best tool against you. So it's not bad. It's not inbred. It's just different. And you, you could make the same kind of argument for main deck Noxious Grasp as well. Although I think that that is systemic for uh, a larger problem. Whereas artifacts and enchantments, I mean, like, these are card types that have been viable and it just so happens that this format has enough of them that it's worthy of 
main deck inclusion, like trying to actually remove those permanents. And yeah, we have Assassin's Trophy, but like if they play a turn one oven, you know, you don't want to trophy that thing. Even like turn four fires, you don't really want to trophy that thing. Like you, you just want an answer like Thrashing Bronson on. Yeah, trophy, again, it's all of its value is based on its versatility, but it will hurt you at times. And going hard into like four Assassin's Trophy is not a realistic thing you can do. I will admit I misunderstood this card when we were pre-evaluating it. I was big on four Assassin's Trophy in many decks. There's still some where this is correct, probably older formats, much less standard, where that mana advantage is super, super problematic to hand to your opponent, especially thinking about the way these decks are set up, right? Because what these artifacts and enchantments are doing is producing mana in some ways, especially with fires. It's clearly producing mana, right? But, but which is oven that combination, any type of free resource generation can be converted to a mana value. And where you're making this effect over and over, you are generating a mana advantage. So handing your opponent a different form of mana advantage doesn't always get the job done. It can leave you in just a bad state as you would have been with the, questionable permanent on the battlefield right you're spending you know mana time a card usually pretty early and all you're doing is really just like nerfing their thing which doesn't actually help you all that much and you could certainly make the case that brontodon is a little bit more expensive so that you know you're paying for mana to kill an oven or a trail of crumbs or whatever but it's like a thing that you can play proactively and just kind of sit on until you actually need to use it and then in the meantime it's kind of beating them down so i i like bronson on a lot i think that that card should be showing up in a few more main decks and then for your jun cat food deck you had uh two copies of assassin's trophy which i think is fine i mean if, if you have the slots and you want some amount of removal that you're able to play on like turn five turn six somewhere in there I think trophy is a fine inclusion, but you're you're basically like never happy about it. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And my use of trophy at that point was born of a lack of knowledge and not knowing what I would be up against. Certainly the knowledge has come more in focus over time and we know what we're targeting at this point. I still have them in my deck just because it's there's so many things you have to account for. Like you have to be able to answer a big creature and you have to be able to deal with this engine and you still really don't know. I mean, I don't think we're at a point of the format being solved. I think there's still occasional weird stuff that pops up from time to time. So I haven't shifted away hard from that, but maybe it is the time to just go to two murderous rider, two thrashing brontodons in these John cat setups and rely on your trail of crumbs to find these cards when you need them. Yeah. I, th- I mean, that's certainly another upside to things like Brontodon over trophy, but the flip side of that and thing that a lot of people have been doing is just main deck casualties of war. Yeah, and that is the real breakthrough that we've seen over the past week. Started up in the Moto PTQ last weekend. I believe it was Batutina playing it. The Uh, legendary Moto Grinder himself. Correct, legendary Moto Grinder finishing second in the Magic Online PTQ, but four copies of Casualties of War. And you and I had spoken about Casualties of War a lot going into last week when the format was unsettled and ultimately got away from it because it felt very easy for the cat food decks to outscale a single copies copy of Casualties of War. Like very often they'd hit a five target Casualties of War against me and it would not matter whatsoever. What if they had a second copy? Exactly my point. When you have a second copy, though, and a third copy and a fourth copy, that changes the equation. And props to Bahutina recognizing 
how hard you have to go into this card to really make it effective. And Yo, these these four casualties of war setups are good. This is a very good way to build this deck. Yeah, there's there's a lot to be learned here, right? Because we we did the thing where we tried the cool tech card and we played it for its max value, what it's supposed to do, and then you realize that you're still beating that card. So instead, you decide the card is not worth it. Right. There's there's two sides you can go, though. You can say, all right, I need none of this card. Or you say, okay, I need more of this card to make it worth it. Or, and, or, even, or even just like, what would I need to supplement this in, sure. in order to actually make it part of my plan? Because obviously, killing five permanents, like, that should be good, right? Like, there's another problem that's going on here. It's not casualty of war's fault that you lost right like i think that card did its best it like it did it at its absolute best that it could so there was something else going on where like maybe you were already too far behind or maybe you just like couldn't beat their reload and i think that's most likely what the problem was right it's like you just Mm -hmm. sandbag more copies of your important things and try to make it not as devastating and make it so you can rebuild as quickly as possible and then that's when the second copy just kind of like grinds you into the dust. And yeah, props to Batutina for for figuring that out. It wasn't like, oh, this card, I cast it once and it didn't win me the game. But what if I cast it twice? Like that is a way to do it. You know what I think is really funny about that being the way to solve this conundrum is that it's also the same way to solve the Garrick conundrum and a lot of discussion over my pronunciation of the word Garrick or Garuk last week. We'll go with Garrick this week. Why not switch it up for the people at home? But it's the exact same problem where the first Garrick may not actually get the job done, but playing multiple copies in the mirror actually scales that card to the point where, okay, now I have a wolf sitting around. I play my second Garrick and I get the instant emblem and win the game on the spot. And a lot of my thinking was when I was including that card was I need to maximize this card. And part of doing that means having access to the third copy in my sideboard for games where this really matters. But I didn't do the same thing with Casualties Vore, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, that's wild. I don't know if it was like maybe Garrick is a little bit more versatile as far as like matchup spread is concerned. So you don't feel as bad going that deep on that card. Mm -hmm. But, But then it could also just be like, well, if I if I play Garrick, I make some wolves. They kill my Garrick. You know what would be really good here is another Garrick. Right. right? It's almost facially obvious, right? Yeah. And that that basically just like ends the game versus like, well, I cast Casualties of War. They fought through it, basically. And you don't necessarily know if like a second Casualties would be the way that you would end up winning that game. You know, like maybe they accrue some advantage with like oven trail of crumbs, et cetera. And their follow up to casualties of war is like three creatures. And then like another casualties won't save you. But you know that like if you Garrick ultimate, you know what the games look like, how they're going to play out. And your opponent just can't really deal with that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's just more obvious on its face. It's funny that this is also propping up to some extent in the fires decks with Sphinx of foresight. Like, People identified Sphinx of Foresight as an answer to a real problem the deck has. It needs fires to be a top tier deck. And occasionally a copy would creep in until there was just four copies in every single fires deck. And they are now routinely finding their fires and also have another fine card to play like four, four body isn't bad. This has been a format really based around maximizing your best interactions. You can even go back to pre bands and think about how the 
Simic food decks were being built for a long time and how there would be one copy of Once Upon a Time. Some people played no copies of Once Upon a Time until it was, oh, actually, I'm supposed to maximize one drop accelerant into Oko for copies of Once Upon a Time without question. This entire well, standard format has been an exercise in pushing things as hard as you can. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not just that where, you know, people would play like fewer copies. It was, let's treat this like Eldrazi and just try and make a turn two Oko or a turn three Nissa, and we right, have mulligan decisions. Yeah, like the the math adds up to the point where you're a statistically huge favorite to be able to make that happen, as long as you're willing to mull the five. And it, it's like some weird combination of things that has to occur in order for your brain to go to that place, right? Because it's like, well, yeah, I mulled the five, but I played a turn three Nissa, so I still won. And and then it's like, oh well, maybe I should just try and mulligan aggressively to get to that point. And then you look at the math. And it's like, well, maybe it's pretty bad, but if we add four once upon a times, then it actually gets really good. Right. Yeah, I think there's there's multiple things about modern magic that are pushing us to consider this angle a little bit more. A lot of it is in card design and the way these cards are being built. Uh, a lot of it is the London Mulligan and the way games yes. often play out. And all of these things are newish things for the game of magic and old hats like us maybe starting to unpack them a little bit more. And I think it's a really valuable time if you want to be succeeding at magic to take the input of people who don't have this 20 years of ingrained magic thinking. Right. I mean, it's not to say we don't get a lot of things right. I, I'm not trying to bury us in this analysis. I think we still no. understand a lot about the game. We just have a lot of biases. We absolutely do. And New faces. I think of someone like Crokey's who tweeted yesterday. He's been playing this game for one year. Yeah. One year. And this guy sits on top of the ladder routinely and often does so with things. But when I look at them, I go, mm, I'm not too sure of that. And then it's proven right. Something like four main deck Noxious Grasp is a, it's a hard leap to take for old hats of magic. But to someone without all that bias built in, it just seemed obvious and ultimately proved to be right. So I, I think this is a really special time in magic to take input from sources that don't have that same historical pedigree built up, but have proven themselves to be really bright minds. Yeah. Just being able to look at Noxious Grasp and be like, yeah, okay, this is going to be dead in some matchups, but in the matchups that matter, it is very live and very good. And then you just continually increase that number. I mean, it's, it's not any different than saying I need to play four lava coils in my deck and having that be dead against some decks, you know? Sure. Sure. Good way of looking at it. So it's it's just weird for us to be like Noxious Grasp is a sideboard card and just be super rigid about it. Yeah, I want to be cognizant of this fact going forward. And I think having this discussion is a really good way to start being cognizant of these biases. And look, people are being rewarded for creative deck building left and right. And these bold larks seem to be getting paid off. They'll miss a lot, but that's part of magic. You miss a lot of your shots. You miss a majority of your shots, in fact. A lot of the decks you build will be very bad. A lot of the conclusions you reach will be very bad. It doesn't mean you shouldn't put yourself out there, though, and try and figure these things out. Because there's almost always a next level to push to, a new thing to figure out about the metagame. Right. And you learn. Every single time you try and fail, you learn something. Absolutely. To the point of consistency, when I was talking to my my buddy Nate Zamora and he was playing around with like these Rakdos or like I guess at the time it was Grixis Knights pre-ban, he had four Embercleaves in his deck and I think I did a deck deck and I like cut one of the Embercleaves and he just yelled at me. He's just like, no, it's the best card. Like it doesn't matter. 
you draw multiples, who cares? Like you need to draw one. And I was like, yeah, but like, you know, three is three is a lot or whatever. And now you see every single Knights deck, you just play four. Mm-hmm. Like he played magic way back in the day. Uh, he always did things a little bit differently, but he's mostly just been a Hearthstone person, you know, since Hearthstone came out. Like he he was playing and he did a ton of casting at their higher level events. And yeah, just like those sort of weird ingrained biases for magic people just like don't apply. It was just like, yeah, you, it's the best card you play for. It doesn't matter if you multi six or whatever, like they're going to kill it or something. You know, and especially now with all the Brontodons and everything. So just play four. Makes sense to me. And I don't want to give all the credit to the newer folks in the scene because I've certainly seen old hats doing a good job of challenging assumptions too. someone like Zvi comes to mind who I think I'm not going to give him credit for putting four Sphinx of Foresight in the Fires deck, but certainly led the charge with that way of thinking. Also did a lot with Once Upon a Time prior to its ban, trying to just slot it in every possible deck, basically splashing green for Once Upon a Time in a lot of spots and often finding improvements for most decks when he was doing so. Yeah, and Zvi is kind of like the the old school dude as far as redundancy, right? He was like, okay, right. we have we have Birds of Paradise and Land Royals. What's the most busted thing we can do? Like that was Zvi's M.O., yeah, and Once Upon a Time is inherently that. Like, I don't want to spend too exactly. much time on Once Upon a Time because it's gone now, but it, it makes sense given his past philosophies that he would be very drawn to a card like that. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think he was just, yeah, one of the, the people who was like, all right, we have redundancy in this effect. What is the best thing that we can do with it? And yeah. that's one way to look at things. And certainly you've seen that in Pioneer too, where it's like, all right, we have eight elves and Once Upon a Time, what yep. we do and oh, that's it's should, so pointed in pioneer it's it's it so is. ridiculous how consistently you can have your three drop on turn two right you know what do we do with that and i i think that is super huge and then you can look at it the other way where there's something like Embercleave, and your your knight's deck is reasonable without it but it's not good right like you absolutely want to draw it because it's so much more powerful than what the rest of your deck is doing and I mean, like you can basically be like a four out of 10 or an eight out of 10 and Embercleave has a lot to do with that. So like, why mm-hmm. would you not just play four? And then people are even just like, well, I'm going to play Rotting Regisaur because it has a lot of power and it works well with Embercleave, you know? And it's just like, that's my deck. I have some Grizzly Bears or whatever, but mostly I'm just trying to Embercleave on a big thing. Yeah. And that has proven to be a step forward for the deck for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, take note, a lot of lessons uh, as far as deck building and Certainly as far as how you can go about attacking a format, too, in in the case of the quad casualties of war setups. So let's get back to the real world. We spent some time in in the theoretical realm, and I'm always appreciative of our trips there. But people who are getting ready for a standard tournament, do you have a strong sense of what they're supposed to be playing right now? I would play a food deck. It would have Gilded Goose and Witch's Oven and Cauldron Familiar and Trailer okay. Crumbs. Those sound like good cards. I think the red cards just add so much power to the deck that I can't really fathom a reason for not playing them. But then again, we're just having this conversation where it's just like everything you think you know might be wrong, right? So I think I do have to do a little bit more digging for why I think that, but I, I do believe that the red cards, at least Mayhem Devil, you know, like Corvold, maybe you decide you want some other top end or some other top end is 
Uh, like maybe it lines up a little bit better against the wide variety of decks that you're going to play against. But Mayhem Devil just seems like it cleans up so many problems. I agree. I am a huge fan of Mayhem Devil. You must account for Casualties of War at this point. I think it is an undeniable presence. Korvald makes me worried in those setups. Garrick makes me worried in those setups to some extent. I wonder if we can tighten up our package a little bit and pull some more damage out of our deck. And if we're talking about playing cards like Thrashing Brontodon in the main deck, that's already a three drop body, like more three power, three cost things allow us to have a somewhat reasonable clock in the early game. And like, maybe you can make an argument for just questing be beasting people to death and just having a quick clock and not letting the game hit that accelerated state in the casualties of war games, but still having access to the, those end states of trail of crumbs, which is of an cauldron familiar in other matchups where you were incentivized to play that longer style of game. So that is something I would look at right now. Is there a food setup that leans much more aggressive? Questing beast is the easiest way to instill that in your deck, but I'm sure there are other ones you can look at. You know what I'm kind of interested in? This doesn't work alongside your engines, but certainly once you're talking about playing Mayhem Devil and Questing Beast and maybe Midnight Reaper, maybe more Planeswalkers, it's just like having uh, Command the Dreadhorde as a way to kind of fight casualties. Okay. I mean, you're still looking at six mana. Are you concerned about hitting that threshold when you're getting just casualties of ward on turn five over and over? Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the setback for that is pretty real. It, if it's, you know, turn five from them or turn six from them, it can set you back a little bit. But if we're talking about like, okay, you casualties me, I put 10 power into play. I mean, there's right. there's not a whole lot worse that you can do. If they casualties you and you're taking like a more creature-centric focus, you might already have a body in play and then you're bringing back like a questing beast to go along with it. So I think you can find ways to punish that card. Maybe Command the Dreadhorde isn't ideal, but... It does seem like a viable way, at least. I, I am worried about the mana cost. I do agree abstractly that card seems powerful right now and like it should have a place in this metagame. My starting point is just going to be pushing damage with things like Questing Beast, seeing how that plays out at that point. If there's no real inroads there, I mean, maybe you start looking at other splashes to respond to casualties of war. Like if your opponent is investing in a six mana sorcery as their main game plan, something like negate starts to be promising. And that's a whole different deck. And obviously you don't have access to red at that point. Probably. I mean, maybe you could go crazy and really no. push that. I doubt it. Look, there's, there's always a way, Gerald, there's literal five color food decks playing Niv-Mizzet right now. There's always a way yeah, if you want okay. it bad enough. All right. I, I have I, another idea. Go ahead. This keeps popping up and it annoys me to no end, especially in a deck with cauldron familiar and Witch's Oven to rebuy it and everything, and then you have Mayhem Devil getting various pings. Why are people playing Duress instead of Drillbit? Because, like, you'll play against a green-black mirror where Duress is not good enough because they don't have enough hits, but Drillbit is at least going to trade one for one, and it's not like you really get into these situations where, you know, both players are hellbent or even, like, your opponent's hellbent and you have this dead card. Like, the, the decks are able to keep on going a lot of the time, right? Whether it's Innkeeper or the Planeswalkers or Trail of Crumbs, like you're going to have a bunch of gas. Drill Bit is always going to hit. And Duress against Fires is not great because if they don't have Fires, then you can't take like their Cavalier to slow them down. And Drill Bit actually just solves that problem. I just don't understand. 
against fires, it does seem like a large upgrade. Your point for like, I mean, maybe I misunderstand if you're suggesting it in the mirror as a way to attack green black decks as well. So I'm saying that if you are considering splashing blue for negate, and obviously when you negate their six mana spell, that's great, but they also typically don't have a ton of spells anyway. It's just like you really want to board in negate just for casualties in the case of like the innkeeper decks, you know, the food decks, like their cards are so cheap and I don't think you can necessarily hold open the gate to tag their trail of crumbs in the early game. Then you lose out on mayhem devil potentially. Mm. I feel like you could just transform these duresses into drill bits, take their big payoff card and then just continue on the plan of trying to bury them. It's a fair question. I, I think a huge portion of the appeal of negate interacting with casualties of war is the mana advantage and giving that up is, I don't know, I'm, I am less inclined to attack opposing food setups with discard just because of how redundant so many of their effects are. And once a Trail of Crumbs is online, your discard looks very, very silly. Like they will just find more copies of the card in question. Obviously, if we're talking specifically about Casualties of War, I'm not going to find that with Trail of Crumbs. But in general, you only have a very small number of reasonable hits, but the same criticism can be made of negate, like you said. There's not all that many things to pick off with that spell. So maybe negate is just something to put on the back burner for a world where things do go very hard in this spell-based direction. Like I said, my well, first instinct, get it done with aggression. One one of the the things that you could do is just play stroke instead of negate. So then you can't okay. tag like oven and crumbs if you ever run into that scenario, but at least stroke doubles as a way to counter fires and a cavalier and maybe a five mana sweeper and then whatever six drop your opponent has plus Corvold, you know, stuff like that. So stroke is a little bit more appealing to me than negate is. But if we decide that we do want mayhem devil and we want to keep it, then I think that drill bit makes a lot of sense. And especially if people are maxing on four casualties, then I kind of just like drill bit. And it's like, yeah, it's not going to line up every time and you're not going to get that you know, very powerful mana advantage, but if they are leaning on casualties to actually make parity with the first one and then set you super far behind with the second one, I mean, if you can beat the first one, you don't even necessarily need the drill bit to line up, right? Like you just need to tag one of them at some point. Right. Interesting theory. I think a lot of the edge to be gained in this upcoming MC in these weekends PTQs is how you are setting yourself up in these mirrors. I'm very curious to see what players come up with as a solution to this two-pronged problem of oven and fires. Well, I don't think that fires is going to be super prevalent among the MPL players. Interesting. I feel like a lot of them are going to look at it like a very wildly inconsistent deck. And obviously Sphinx of Foresight solves some of those issues. And I don't think if people play games with it, and they have the experience of not having fires and they just lose because their Cavaliers are a little too clunky or whatever. Like, I think that they're just going to look for something else, like something better. That's interesting. It was the most played deck at Twitch Rivals, but that was a much broader field. Uh, it wasn't highly represented among MPL players in that tournament, to your point. So that is a fair statement. But in the aftermath, it does seem like this is the deck that's grabbing the trophies for the most part. It did win the standard PTQ. And if you go to ladder on arena, 
it feels like fires is everywhere. And obviously, every single sample we bring back from Arena is very anecdotal, very small. So don't take too much from my Arena experience. But I've played against a lot of fires on there. I tried to log into Arena like a week ago, and they told me to reset my password, and I was just off it. That's it? You're done with Arena forever? Not forever. I mean, I'll, I'll do it at some point. Uh, but I, I was just like, I'll go play Pioneer because that's kind of what I want to do anyway. So I tried to log on to Magic Online. I know. My password was reset. I couldn't get onto Magic Online. So I said, well, guess it's time to play Arena. So the exact opposite experience on my side. Yeah. So I feel like I, I went through the process of trying to get back onto Magic Online, at least the account where you know the majority of my cards live currently. And I managed to hack my way through the the privacy question. Nice. So if I if I could not hit that, yeah, I would have been brick walled. Like, there's no way in hell I'm like trying to contact customer service and talking through all that, and like you know, let alone think about whether or not I want to try and get all of my 24 accounts back or whatever. I'm picturing you in like the 90s hacker movie, like cigarette dangling from your mouth, just jamming on your keyboard aggressively trying to get into the Magic Online site. Yeah, that, I mean, that's basically what it was. I believe that. I, I got on like the third try. I'm just like the greatest code breaker ever. Yeah, I couldn't get mine. I failed. Uh, and your your account was like more recent than mine too, which is funny. Right. It was only a couple years old and I still had absolutely no idea. <laughs> oh, man. Why? Why? Why did this happen? I mean, first world problems and everything, but. It's because Magic Online heard me saying nice things about it and calling it a program I really enjoyed. So they're like, like, oh, yeah, I'll I'll show you. Get out. All right. Well, outside of these these top two decks, what do you like? Anything? So I just recorded a deck tech. It's not up yet. It will be going up on our YouTube page sometime in the next couple days about a gruel list that had Karn in the main deck. It was gruel adventures and it had uh, four... Ember, what, what's the first part of that card? Something shield breaker. Embereth, right? Yeah. One, uh, R, so, one R2 one and then R shatter. Correct. So a bunch of main deck artifact answers and card advantage in the form of innkeeper into uh, Lovestruck Beast and then a bunch of Ember Cleaves and Karn going to the sideboard and getting the Great Henge or more Ember Cleaves. And I thought the setup was really nice because my beef with Gruul is it kind of does nothing good. It just is this aggro deck that if you answer a couple threats from it, it has no card advantage and it just sits there and dies eventually. Yeah. This felt like a bigger take on Gruul, a take that actually had some late game and could outscale opposing decks while still accounting for key permanents in the format. Four copies of Cinder Vines in the sideboard, so very ready to answer uh, any kind of enchantment-based shenanigans that were going on. I-, I thought it was a pretty impressive list. I'm trying to remember. I want to give the author of the list credit. Give me one second and I'm going to pull that up because I'm talking a lot about the deck to not point to the original person who came up with it. How dare so, you not remember their name? I know. It was tweeted at the Arena Decklist account by Adverse 5 and they had played it to 18th place on the ladder. And like I said, you can go look at the Arena Decklist account to get a look at the list. I'll also be putting up that deck tech at some point. But I really liked a lot of the stuff that was going on with this Gruel list. I played it on ladder. I found some Decent matchups against Fires was pretty generally okay against it. Felt okay against the cat food setups. And then I got distracted by other things. So maybe this deck is special. Maybe it's worth investing more time into. I was really impressed with the way it was constructed for the most part. I don't have a hard recommendation at this point. Like I'm not saying go play this deck. It's the next big thing. But it was very interesting to me. 
Yeah, Karn Karn is pretty nice. I've I've suggested that card to a few people, and I do think a lot of the strength in the card is going to be tied up in what actual good things you can get out of the sideboard. And mm-hmm. actual colorless does not lend itself a whole lot of options. But when you're talking about getting things like the Great Henge, then I'm in. Yeah, Embercleave, Great Henge, Stone Coil Serpent, Sorceress Spyglass, and one more card. If you're not looking at this list, Jerry, you can never guess it, but I'm going to make you try and guess it. Enchanted you know Carriage. Yeah, uh, you know what it is. That's cheating. It is Enchanted Carriage, which is kind of crazy. And I, I find it hard to believe there's a lot of spots where you're going to go grab your Enchanted Carriage, but props for trying something new anyway. And I, I do like the Karn setup. It's shutting down Witch's Oven. It's a big game right now. Yeah. And I mean, only two Karns in the list. Correct. Correct. Not a full still, dive. Yeah. Still very good. Yep. I like it. And, and the Shield Breaker, too. I mean, that's. And, and Crawl Harpooner. Like right. that, that's another one where it's like, look, if you're if you're playing cat food, I'm, I'm going to FTK like all your stuff. Yeah. And these cards are like fine. Like given the rest of the context in the deck, you certainly would not be happy jamming four Embereth shield breakers in your deck typically. But once your adventures, it starts to make some sense. So I, I think there's a lot of smart synergies being pushed here and probably some more room to optimize this archetype as well. Yeah, I like this. Uh, the cat food fires deck. I don't know if it's good or anything, but. You're talking about the five-color Niv-Mizzet version? No, just uh, Jund. Okay. Have you seen the five-color Niv-Mizzet version? Uh, no. Okay. I think that is also from Zvi. That's the first place I saw it. So Zvi continuing to push really hard on what this format is capable of. I have no clue whether it's good or not, but man, does it look wild. All right. I'll go. I'll go check out Zvi's stuff. Yeah. Go take a peek. It is very worth it. But if I had to play a tournament, I probably am just registering some variant of junk food, making the changes I was suggesting and trying to get a little bit more aggressive. All right, I'm looking now. Ethereal Absolution, that's a magic card. Three fires, sure. Casualties, Niv Mizzet. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the Nivs don't have a lot of hits, really. But it. But does... if you're hitting a bunch of six drops, then you don't really yeah, care, right? Right, yeah. I mean, but that that's also kind of weird because then he only has three fires, but... I don't know. I certainly trust Zvi as far as like wild stuff like this. I mean, I, I don't think that he would just be like, oh, here's a random like napkin deck list or whatever. Right. This is this is a very clear goal to push as hard as you can on the format and a lot of props for seeing what you can make of it. Oh, and he's streaming too. All right. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Love to see it. Dude, he's, he's really angling for those special invites. Love it. All right, what else for standard? That's that's what I got for standard. That's that's what I'm interested in right now. It feels like the format is tightening a little bit. There's less room for crazy off the wall stuff, and and that's where my attention is focused presently. All right, I'm going to need you to give a letter grade to two decks. Let's do it. Simic Flash. Still a solid C. The games where it does its thing, it'll feel great. Uh, there's just a lot of times where it doesn't though. And this one is for Nick Prince specifically, so let's need adventures. I love you, Nick. D minus. Damn. Going hard. All right. <laughs> uh, best of luck to all the folks at MC, whatever number we're on. And I hope someone breaks it. The standard format post-ban, I've I've been pretty happy with, but I also like Cat Oven a lot, so I might be biased there too. Yeah, I I am okay with it. I do recognize an issue where like 
every game feels like time to set up my engine and see what it can do. And that gets a little repetitive. The cat oven play can also be a little bit repetitive in some instances and a little clunky on arena for sure. Yeah. Certainly a big upgrade over the last format. I would like to see more of a return to less put together my things and see how powerful I can make them in the world of magic. Yeah. Fair enough. So on, on to pioneer. Let's talk pioneer on to, to greener pastures, maybe where there is a very, very, very clear best deck. It is not close. I think it's been clear for a while now. I was saying this while I was doing coverage of the invitational uh, mono black is the best deck in pioneer. Sometimes with night market, night market lookout, sometimes without. Only if you're smart enough to play the Night Market Lookouts. I don't know why I've become a champion of Night Market Lookout. I honestly don't even like the card that much. But for whatever reason, this is the stance I've adopted. You you like Rune for the Underdog, you know? I guess so. Yeah, I guess that's it. No, I, so one thing that I think is great is Mono Black moving towards like two Aethersphere Harvesters for Mirror Matches. Mm-hmm. And I think that card is incredible. I also think having more vehicles makes night market lookout more palatable correct very true so very down with two aethersphere harvesters uh very down with a couple virulent plagues in the sideboard for field of the dead and then past that i don't really know i mean i I feel like oh there's a ptq today in like three hours ish right yeah maybe i should play mono black I, i could it could be me it, it could be you because Mono Black has won both PTQs that have occurred thus far in Pioneer Week. A very clean sweep for Mono Black. I, I think it also won the challenge. I'm actually not 100% sure on that before I claim that. But unquestionably, Mono Black just putting up incredible results over the last couple of weeks. Also, and Jerry, Jerry, you know what happens in Pioneer when you put up results. They you go to the bench. Night market lookout. You, I, I hope, I hope not. Jeez, that would be a wild ban. Uh, you go to the bench when you do too well in Pioneer, and I am hesitant to talk about this because our stance on the Arena Decklist podcast for a long time has been: don't waste your time talking about bans. I, if, I still agree with that for whatever that's worth, but I'm going to let know, you say and, your piece. And I do too, for the most part, but how else are you supposed to engage with this format? Like the reality of the situation is that there are weekly bans. There are weekly ban announcements that will always be a talking point. And if we came to this episode, like if we, if we were just treating this like a normal format, we should come here and we should do a deck tech on mono black to get players ready for the next few PTQs because it's unquestionably the best deck. And that's what we do here. We point you towards the best deck and we tell you how to get an edge and we tell you how to play it, but it would be dead content in two days. Like there's no way something doesn't change here. So as content creators, we have to change the way we engage with this particular format. And I understand your frustration. I'm frustrated about it too. And I don't know how an average consumer is supposed to like jump in headfirst to pioneer. If you're buying your pioneer cards right now and buying mono black, you are a brave, brave soul. I will tell you that, but what else are we supposed to do here? What would you have us do? Would you have us just record that deck tech and pretend this isn't a real thing? That's the point that I'm sympathetic to where we could do a mono black deep dive. And that was certainly something we considered, but I don't know, man. I, I feel like if it is outdated in a couple days, it might help people who, you know, listen to the episode on 
Thursday and then play a PTQ on Friday or a PTQ over the weekend or whatever. I would prefer to just put out content that is relevant in the moment and just kind of whatever happens, happens. That's one approach. I want to prepare people for this format long-term. And I think if you want to be in it for the long haul, focusing on what is going to be best on a moment-to-moment basis in this format is challenging. You want to look more for theoretical angles that are best and staples of this format, which is where a lot of our focus has lied. And I think we've mostly done a good job of pointing people in the right direction for what is important in Pioneer. We both feel very strongly that once upon a time plus mana accelerant is a really big pillar. We feel really strongly that like the thought sees fatal push disruption core is the absolute best thing you can be doing in terms of interacting with people in Pioneer. And now we have to decide how to inform people to go forward with this format. I think if you're playing PTQs in the next few days, hop on mono black consider the mirror a lot. If you look at yesterday's winning list, there were four dark betrayals in the sideboard. So just (laughs) destroying black creatures for one mana. I don't even think that's good, by the way. I I don't know. I mean, like if you go really hard into Spawn of Mayhem, as the winner did here, Medvedev took first place in the Pioneer PTQ playing four copies of Spawn of Mayhem, which is an accelerated number from what we've seen in most decks. You can understand that Dark Betrayal reacting to that is really nice, but Dark Betrayaling a... Night Market Lookout or a Bloodsoak Champion, never going to be a good play. I guess you catch Rankle no matter what. Everyone is basically in on three copies of Rankle and controlling that for one mana. That's a really nice mana exchange. So it may not be the best thing to do. I think it's a fine thing to do, though, in the mirror. Yeah, I mean, so I think the big thing is that it catches Kalidus in the post-board games, which is one of the few cards that can actually run away with it. But especially when people are moving towards Aethersphere Harvester, I think that Infernal Reckoning is also a very good card that you could play. Okay. Just the the fact that it hits Copter and Scrap Heap and also gains you a little bit of life helps a lot more, I think, than, you know, killing a Bloodsoak Champion or whatever. Like, obviously, you're trying to target Rankle and Spawn and Kalidus and maybe Knight of the Ebon Legion, and maybe that's more relevant. But I feel like you already have some amount of Fatal Pushes that are able to catch a lot of those things. So maybe a split is better. I don't know. I guess I'll point out, while I agree with you, Aethersphere Harvester seems like a fine place to be. If you're looking at lists from the top eight of yesterday's PTQ, it's mostly ignored. There's two copies in one list and all the other lists play no Aethersphere Harvesters. And I think there's, is there four total or five total? Uh, Four four mono black lists in the top eight. Three of them completely ignore Harvester. One had two copies in the main. I, I don't think it's this thing that is like widespread prevalent or whatever, but you I just think, think it's good. I, I think it's good. And I think it's possible that it becomes prevalent, especially now that those lists got posted. Okay. Well, you don't want to get too far ahead of yourself, right? And in some ways yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm concerned Infernal Reckoning might be crossing that bridge, uh, but I do agree the card is powerful. And no, the- so Reckoning was a card that people played already because of Scrap Heap and Copter. Sure. So it's it's already fine to play like two copies. I'm not saying like go deep on four or whatever, but like I the the card's value goes up as people start adopting Aethersphere Harvester. That's all I'm saying. Gotcha. I see I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Yeah, that's it. Uh and just that I, I think like my rating of Dark Betrayal is a little bit on the low end, but obviously it goes up the more people adopt Spawn of Mayhem too. So Infernal Reckoning kind of just like starts at a higher place for me, but I'm not sure if if I were playing that deck in the PTQ what I would do exactly. 
The deck that I just recorded some videos on is the Teamer Splendid Reclamation Field of the Dead deck. Okay, how is that? I'm currently 2-0 in a league, no big deal. Uh, but this is one of the very few decks, I think, in the format that gets to play Magma Spray and Anger of the Gods and be happy about it. That's a big place to go. And if I was incentivized to figure out how to beat this mono black deck, I would be exploring that very hard. Uh, I could also just wait for three days and then I probably never have to play against it again. So I guess I'll take that strategy. I mean, I don't know. What am I supposed to do here? Depends on your tournament schedule. <laughs> that Honestly. is true. That I is mean, true. If if you have a tournament, well, I mean, I, I this would matter like a week ago, right? Like a week ago, you could be like, hmm, this, this mono black deck seems quite good and potentially very problematic. And it has things like Thoughtseize and Smuggler's Copter that are the cheapest, most efficient cards in the format. And if this deck actually takes over, like something will likely get banned, right? And mm. now you're seeing just the absurd proliferation into top eights and top 32s. And it's very Green Devotion-esque, right? So yeah. a week ago, you could be like, well, I have to play these PTQs this week. So maybe you should invest or maybe you should go to Card Hoarder and get a, a loan account for Magic Online. Or mm, That sounds like a good idea. Whatever, like you, you can find ways to kind of play around it, uh, sort of take like preventative measures. And now if it's like, well, you have a tournament the next week, I would probably wait for the BNR list on Monday. I like where your head's at, Gerald. No, but I, I agree. Anger of the Gods, Magma Spray, a sweet place to be if you have figured that list out for these next couple days of tournament. I would expect big, big changes come next BNR announcement, though. Something from this mono black list. And there's really only two options. I'll, I'll tell you that if you're looking to get ahead of it. Hold I on. I think you either... Hold Go on. Ahead. What you got uh, for me? What, what else do you think is on the chopping block? I think Once Upon a Time is a net negative to the format. And the 8L for Once Upon a Time setups will be way, 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 way too prevalent especially if you are getting rid of this mono black deck, which is a very natural predator to those setups in a lot of spots. So I would kill once upon a time. I would kill Nexus because everyone hates playing against it so, so much. It is a super frustrating play experience. It probably should have never existed. And let's not let it sit around for, you know, another five years and have people be frustrated by it. Agreed. Yeah. Hate it. You know, I'm a Nexus fan too. I but, know. Uh, what, what about yeah. Field of the Dead? I think that the setup of Hour of Promise into Field of the Dead is probably too powerful for Pioneer. And it's funny that this proves to be more powerful than things like Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise, but I do think that's where we're at, and I would just get ahead of it. I, it it's very clear that if you ban not in contemplation of the second best deck, then the second best deck just becomes the first best deck. We have seen that many times now. That is how things will play out. That obvious wrinkle seems to just follow. So get ahead of it. In, in my eyes, the second best deck is some form of Field of the Dead. I am very into the green-black versions that Sam Black, Autumn Burchett popularized at the Invitational. I think there's still a lot of room to improve those decks, and they're already very good. So that has my vote for the second best deck right now. I would just push that out of the format as well before it just takes over. Yeah. So there, there was a period of time where Josh Cho continually lost to people playing Fling in Standard. Okay. And my Fling so far in Pioneer has been Soul Flare. Soul Flare hunting you down, huh? And I can just never beat it. So yeah, if, if 
like you axe once upon a time and the thing that just irrationally makes me the most happy is soul flare <laughs> getting a little bit weaker that's funny. That is not what everyone else is thinking about once upon a time, but I'm I know. glad I, it will have that side benefit to you. Yeah, I know it's messed up, but it just makes me happy. So yeah, I support that. But tell us about Mono Black, because I, I think that Thoughtseize is untouchable. And past that, it's like, yeah, the, the cards are good and cheap and efficient, but what is the thing that is making this better than every other potential aggro deck that could also play Copter and Mutavolt? And outside of Thoughtseize, go ahead, your answer. Castle Lothwain is the it's the actual only other answer if you're if you're thinking you don't go after Smuggler's Copter. And I think there are pros and cons to Smuggler's Copter in the format. On the whole, I've appreciated it, it being part of the Pioneer format thus far. I do Me think too. it's very powerful, but I think it leads to unique deck building. And it certainly squeezes those four slots from every single aggro deck, and that will mostly remain true. But I don't see it as a net negative on the format right now. So if you're going after this deck, you kind of have to take out a card which very much feels innocuous, but it is an angle that Mono Black gets that a quote-unquote aggressive deck. And that's a bit of a misnomer when it comes to Mono Black. I think it has more in common with a Fish-style deck than an aggressive deck, but that's besides the point. You should not have access to this level of card advantage when you're playing this style of deck. And the cost of playing for Castle Lockdwayne is so, so low. It's exactly this kind of value that made the castles my number one cards from Throne of Eldraine. And we go back now, and that does look a little silly in the context of Once Upon a Time, Oko, a bunch of other truly, truly broken stuff that has come out of the set. But the core basis for having those cards so high is just incredible value, almost no cost, and they can be ubiquitous in a lot of spots. And it's weird that it has come to fruition in Modern before it came to fruition, or excuse me, in Pioneer before it came to fruition in Standard. But the circumstances were just correct for a monocolored deck to really have all the tools. And this deck leverages Castle Lockdwayne so hard. It makes it impossible to have any kind of like removal based game plan against them. It doesn't slam the door shut really quickly. That's one of the reasons why the green black decks are so appealing is because you just stabilize, stabilize, stabilize. Oops, I made 20 power and you're dead. And I think a lot of decks are going to be forced into that play pattern as long as Mono Black has access to Castle Lockdwayne and can play these super long games. Yeah, and what happens if, for whatever reason, they decide to take action against, like, Once Upon a Time, Field of the Dead, and not Mono Black, you know? And then Mono Black just still has Castle and Copter and Knight and Mutavolt, and you get to play 24 lands in your beatdown deck with, like, 13 one-drops, and it's just absurd. Yeah, I am right there with you. Uh, I think this is the clear candidate for action. I would go deeper than that, though, and make a pretty wide cut for this next pass through Pioneer. I don't know. I do I do find these discussions interesting in this context specifically. I, I don't find them super interesting when it comes to standard. But here we took a lot of the safety rails off and we basically said, okay, this format's going to be broken. We'll let time sort it out. So there is an interesting discussion to be had of how you make this the best format. I don't think it should be the focal point of our podcast, but stuff like this, I don't mind delving into a little bit here and there. Oh, trust me. It will not become the focal point of our podcast. <laughs> I'll make my own podcast just talking about nothing but pioneer bands. Well, that's for that's for YouTube, my friend. Uh, very good point. And also, I'm I'm still, you know, just a little frightened by the word delve in regards to my previous Soul Flare losses. So 
I understand Delve's powerful keyword. Hasn't come to fruition yet, though. Uh, you say that, but I mean, I'm getting attacked for eight on <laughs> turn three every game. So, Wow, what did these Soul Flayers do to you? This this feels like some really deep trauma. Yeah, yeah, man. I don't know if I can play Pioneer anymore. Like, if I lose playing for top eight in a PTQ to like Soul Flayer or something, I might just be done with Pioneer, so... Well, if it makes you feel better, I see no soul flares anywhere near the top of these PTQ fields. So if yeah, you make the, it out of the early rounds, you should be safe. The thing is, man, they find me. Right. They're hunting you, know? you down the whole time. They are. I don't know what I did to them. I have like a Chinese foil one and everything. I pulled them out when I was like pulling out playable stuff. Like, yeah, respect. But like, what what did I do to you? I just don't get it. Now it's, now it's turned its back on you. It's just out to get me, man. It's wild. How do you beat Hexproof and Indestructible, man? None of the decks I build can beat that. You mostly don't. Uh, that is why Soul Flayer is quote unquote playable. And I think that is still up for debate at this point. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's get off it. I'm getting very sad about this format. If you were playing PTQ and let's say you had a self-imposed ban, right? Like you couldn't play Field of the Dead or uh, Mono Black. And let's say you could play once upon a time. What would you play? Uh, I think I just play green red in that scenario. I, I think it's pretty close to the top tier of decks. Uh, something like Goblin, Rabble Master, Ember Cleave setups, which we have popped up from time to time. I think that's completely acceptable. One thing I will note as far as technology for these decks, uh, there is a fourth place finisher, Cristiano 7, two copies of Vine Mare in Cristiano 7's deck. That's an mm. interesting one. Haven't seen a ton of that. Only two copies of Once Upon a Time, Cristiano, though. Come on. Get those numbers up. Those are amateur numbers for Once Upon a Time in all these decks every single time. Well, he had to cut them for the Vine Mares. <laughs> I guess so. Had to get, had, something had to go, you know? Yeah. All, yeah, all Once Upon a Time, fight. all the time. But I, I do like Vine Mare here. So there is a little bit of technology. And that has my pick as the next tier of decks after bands have eliminated Field of the Dead and Mono Black. I might try and build some teamer garbage. We'll see. Not not the Splendid Reclamation deck. I would never refer to that deck as garbage. But I don't know. Just like Tireless Tracker, Wicked Wolf, Magma Spray, nonsense. Mm, I've seen some nice looking teamer garbage out there floating around. I've never seen it win, but maybe you have the secret sauce, Jerry. Oh, I really don't. So I, I doubt. <laughs> I doubt I'm doing anything you know, better than other folks. And then obviously when you're playing mid-range, Field of the Dead is a huge issue. But, you know, things like Blood Sun or Crumble of Dust can like kind of help those issues. But then you're almost very pigeonholed into ensuring that you draw and resolve one of those, which is kind of tough. Right. I, I am telling you, we need to schedule an intervention with some of these gruel players in pioneer i am seeing multiple deck lists with only two once upon a time and i just want to like shake them and be like have you read this card play it before it gets banned maximize it you're not going to sell me on this unfortunately pro tour freddy though four copies of once upon a time hell yeah yeah there, there is a lot of green red floating around yesterday's top eight by the way this is the 1126 top eight now granted it was a mono black mirror in the finals but fourth place fifth place looks like we have ninth place all being taken up by green red aggro yeah copter cleave goblins elves once upon a times sure deck is super strong i mean i covered a match at the invitational where it won on the draw multi-four 
in game five, a deciding game five, just threw an ember cleave on a goblin rabble master and won the game out of nowhere. It was a pretty, pretty incredible display of power from the Yeah, deck. but that's because the ballista just got ran out there and died doing a brain. I and- understand. We're not going to talk about the other side of play right now. We're just talking about what the gruel player was able to accomplish. You play the game as your opponent presents it to you just because they got a freebie with that valueless ballista doesn't mean we invalidate what the deck is capable of on the other side. No, the deck is good. I'm just saying it's not like you can't, you can't sell it as like, Oh, this deck is busted at one on a Maldifor. Like it, if things played out how they should, I understand. So just I understand. Don't, you can, you can sell me on what this deck is capable of without bringing up that specific match. One of, one of the big things I have clung to when doing magic broadcasting is that it is my job to present the game as it is presented to me. I try not to second guess players in most instances. I try and just say, here's the game as presented. I will make you enjoy it and tell you what is going on. So I have carried that over, I guess, to my analysis of that particular game. But your point is very fair. Yeah, it's just good. not good evidence. That's all. Yep. Anyway, I think that about does it for the cast, unless there's anything else that you want to add. No, I have nothing else to add. That's okay. it. So we'll we'll add a lot of stuff at the end because every week we solicit the fine folks in our Discord for their burning questions. And I actually have to check to see. Yeah, you just you just ask for general questions, right? And maybe like the first half were just about Thanksgiving and pie. Yeah, really hot topic of discussion is our opinion on pie. But before we get into the actual question, though, Jerry. No, I I think uh, I know. Go ahead. I I'll, just, I'm sorry. I, I'll step back. Do your thing. I was I was just saying it, it's it was really heavy on the pie questions. I just assumed that you had asked something specific in regards to pie and was going to kind of yell at you. But no, the people nope. just did that on their own. Yeah, people just love pie. And I, I messaged Nick Prince and said that my favorite kind of pie is the color pie. Oh, that's a very magic centric answer. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. My favorite my favorite kind of pie for people who are curious for some reason Probably just apple. I'm sorry. That's not a very exciting answer. Uh, I actually like strawberry rhubarb a lot. I'm going to change my answer. Strawberry rhubarb pie. Rhubarb. Okay. Yeah, it's good. Well, the question of the week, uh, the person who we select gets a really nice enamel arena deckless pin. And the question of the week this week is sponsored by Inked Gaming, who, if y'all don't know, definitely go check out their website. They are an awesome, awesome group of people making some of the best gaming accessories. They made our original playmats. They sponsored the last two years of the Chalice event, a charity event run by Mox Boarding House. They make a bunch of rad stuff. They're going to continue to make rad stuff for us. Brian, I know you have a lot of nice things to say about Ink Gaming, so go ahead. Yeah, I love all of their custom gear in particular. Getting a playmat made with whatever you want on it is a really, really cool thing. Nice way to be a little meme with your friends. If you're thinking of a perfect Christmas present, why not make them a playmat of you so you can be staring at them? I think Jerry's actually putting together a playmat. It's just him giving me a disapproving glance. That way I just have it in my soul for every game of Magic I ever play for the rest of my life. Really looking forward to receiving that one and just being endlessly taunted by that particular ink gaming accessory. I know, I know that that image is just burned in your brain already. I, I don't know that we needed a play mat for that, but 
<laughs> May as well just memorialize it in playmat form. But you can memorialize anything in playmat form, and that is the cool stuff about ink gaming. Of course, there's all kinds of other accessories that they do over on their site, and they have their once a year Black Friday sale going on. So you want to make sure you take advantage of those discounts right now and tell them the folks at Arena Decklist sent you over there. 30% off on almost everything. Uh, discount code giving19 for that sale. Like Brian said, definitely tell them that we sent you. Again, like we would not hype them up unless we truly believed in them, loved what they are doing, the stuff that they're making, etc. So trust us when we say that their stuff is the best. And Maybe I will uh, change my motto in celebration of this sale from if it's free, it's me, to if it's 30% off, it's me instead. Yeah. Uh, so sale, 12 a.m. Pacific, November 29th to 11.59 p.m. Pacific, December 2nd, 2019. So kind of a short window, but by the time this podcast is posted, I think it'll be, I think we're going to post this Thursday night and then the sales the next three days. So get on it. Yeah, it'll be real close. Make sure you take advantage. Yeah. Question of the week. This week comes from Sarkhan. S-A-R-K-H-O-N with Arena and Arena tournaments starting to take off. How can we as players use Arena as a tool for testing? MTGO is probably a better tool overall, but Arena allows for more exploration and experimentation. How does this fit into the playtesting paradigm? And what do you feel is the best use of time for playtesting for paper standard events using the online tools that we have? And this could be a whole episode but we're gonna try and we're gonna try and condense it. So Brian, kick it off. Well, I th I think Sarkhan did a really good job answering his own question in some ways. So you play Magic Online, you're locked into a league with a list. You play Arena, you can change your list after every single match, and you are super incentivized in that fashion to just try out a whole bunch of things. And instead of stopping when you try one Casualties of War and it doesn't quite get there up it for the next game. It's so it's only one game. And that's the whole thing is that you're burning through matches and games so quickly that you're just accumulating all this information and there's no financial cost to losing that particular match. The only cost you have is your ladder ranking and I am telling you right now the biggest thing you can take away from this discussion of how to play test on arena is this piece of advice. Don't look at it. Let go of your ladder ranking. It does not matter. There are great, great magic players who are sitting in bronze right now. I promise you that. Hi. And there you go. There's Jerry sitting in bronze. Only because um, I can't get into my account. <laughs> but this proved true with magic online as well when you could track your ELO ranking. And oftentimes, my best results in a tournament were predicated by times that I just tanked that rating, experimenting and trying a billion different things. And I never, ever tied myself to what that rating said as far as my level of understanding of a format. And exactly the same fashion you have to approach Arena. Your ladder ranking says almost nothing about how well you are understanding the game at that moment. Now, I don't want to take away from top performers on the ladder. That is something in and of itself. It's a very impressive accomplishment. And I'm not out here trying to say it's meaningless, but the difference between you being number 100 on the ladder and you being down in the percentages in terms of your skill as a player, completely negligible. It says nothing about how good you are 
or where you were at in this particular format. It's just an arbitrary ranking. Do not put stock in it and use Arena for what it's best at. And that is, like Sarkin said, experimentation and just getting a real deep understanding of the format. So one thing I will say in regards to caring about Arena ranking versus like testing and learning is figure out what your goals are. If you care about that smaller number next to your name, that higher rank, then yeah, pick the best deck that you have and just grind and don't try and necessarily learn and try different things because there there will be a learning curve to that and you will be stumbling a little bit. Like if you want to try and hit number one, pick the best possible deck that you can and just like stick with it. But in Sarkin's case, they're asking about testing specifically. So yeah, definitely just throw the rank in the garbage. It doesn't matter. But as far as how to utilize Arena, what Brian said is true. You get to iterate as much as you want. I mean, I, I disagree with Brian's notion that I'm locked in a league. I can drop whenever I want. But, uh, Arena, but you were privileged, Gerald, and you were doing that at a cost to yourself. And a lot of people will not be able to do that. That I is know. the distinction. I know. Fully aware. But yeah, Arena, like that. that is just how it operates. You get to play game after game after game and try whatever you want and... There are even floors, you know, like if you're in Mythic, you're not going to fall out of Mythic. If you're in Plat or Diamond or whatever, you're not going to fall out of those either. And that's generally what a lot of my grinding has looked like. It's like, okay, I'm a couple wins away from hitting the next rank. I guess I will play a good deck, try to get there. And then once I can't fall down anymore, then it's time to go back to learning. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. And it has mirrored my own experience. I... Do you think there's some merit to also just using Arena as part of your testing group, like finding other like-minded people and playing a bunch of games against a very specific set of competition? But also, let's not decrease the value of information and just playing a bunch of Arena games will expose you to what other people are thinking as well. You have to be careful with what you see and not take it as fact. It's all going to be very anecdotal and small sample size, but there is something there, something to be learned as well. And some of my best deck ideas have just come from playing against other people on arena, seeing underfined versions of things and just being like, okay, this is something I can work with and starting my own list from square one. Yeah. Or someone plays a card against you that you didn't consider. And it's like, Oh, this, this fundamentally changes things. Yeah. Like information is huge. And this is, this is basically about gathering information, right? It's like you want to play a bunch of different games against a wide variety of opponents who also feel differently about the format than you do. But Brian nailed the other thing I was going to say was once you get to a certain point, you don't want to play against random opponents anymore. There are very specific things that you want to figure out. And at that point, you use the tool to test with people you know. So it's like you get to the point where you like food against every other deck in the format, but you really want to try out different plans against fires. You play against someone else, uh, ideally Jeff Pika, but... You know, just anyone who is like good with fires is going to try to win the games with fires and is also there to explore things and learn and just make sure that y'all are on the same page as far as your goals. Yeah, a lot of this can be summed up in just a very simple statement. Know what you're trying to learn. Have a purpose. If you do that, I think your testing will be directed very well. Agreed. Agree completely. Gather information and then 
yeah, figure out specifically what you want to learn and then go from there. And it's possible that you bounce back and forth, right? You're like, all right, I'm in the gathering information stage. I'm playing on ladder. Okay, I want to learn these specific things. I'm going to try with my friends. Okay, that didn't work out. Back to the drawing board, you start brewing again, you start playing against a wide variety of people, and then you know you just flip-flop back and forth depending on how much time you have. Sounds like a great approach. Yep, have a plan. That's game! Good luck.